Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 41 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, November the 13th. First, I'll be talking to entrepreneur Ringo Chan, who is on his way to revolutionising the betting industry with his eco-friendly, ergonomic and philanthropic company, Ecosa. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the RBA's decision to cut interest rates to drag Australia out of the coronavirus recession. But now, let's talk to Ringo Chan. Ringo Chan, your business, Ecosa, started up in 2015, and you now have a turnover of more than $30 million. Tell us about Ecosa. It's a betting business, isn't it? Okay. So, it was just hard buying a mattress, right? Like, you can walk into a store where um, people, you know, you get this salesman, you know, jumping at you and go, oh, what do you like? How much do you have, right? And, like, you just want the best mattress. But you don't want to say that because once you say that, they will be like, okay, here is a um, $5,000 mattress. They don't necessarily give you the best that they have, but they will just recommend you the most commission they can get from. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, and then, and then the price is just crazy. If, and, then, and then they will be like, oh, I can drop, drop it uh, 50% for you. So in order... Um, rather than spending $5,000, you can spend $2,000 now. 
like it's still extremely expensive. And then back then I was like, you know, like this got to have a solution. And that's how like this whole Ecosa thing comes in where we, we find that mattress doesn't really cost that much. So we, we cut down the price, but we make the best out of the best mattress, just one. So people don't have to come in and, you know, choose in between a hundred beds, which they don't really need. And, and this is basically online, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we do it all online. So people choose their mattress online? Yeah, so we only have one type of mattress, and then you, you buy it, and then it ships to your house within a, a hundred days. If you don't like it, you can return it. So it's funny when you walk in, if you buy a mattress in a store, you think you're testing the mattress, but you can only lay down for at most 10 minutes. Like you're not going to lay down on each mattress for 30 minutes or even sleep on, sleep on it. And it's, and then most, most likely you're just buying, you will just be buying the softest mattress because first time experience, soft mattress feels good. But when you are actually sleeping on the mattress, it's more than that. It's back support, is you know, spine alignment and, and all these other things, which you can't really tell. So how did you turn it into such a big business in just five years? <laughs> so it's, I think it's about perfecting the, the, the product. Yeah, you just have to have, you know, like you just have to have the best product so people can, can refer others and, and always, you know, you, you, you know that you're selling something very good it's eco-friendly isn't it and ergonomic at the same time yeah yes so tell us about that okay uh so so um ergonomic is where everyone needs um so so like we have the memory form um the two types of memory form that we we put into the mattress and then um, also the base form, we also have this uh, ergonomic cut where it shapes into your your hips and 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 your and your shoulder, so so it will just align your body. So um, and then we we use the, like the best um, eco-friendly material as possible to make our mattress because we are very conscious about, and that's why the company called Ecosa as well. So we're very conscious about eco eco friendly. So how how is it eco friendly the material? So um, there are many ways to make forms. So so you can you can make forms in you know put a lot of um, chemicals and things in it, or or you can you can you can have like this high spec of going you know uh, you know buying the less polluted like uh, materials that you can get in the market but it will jack up the price by quite a bit so yeah so it's just choosing the best way for the environment to to source products and things now that's that's very interesting and uh, what's fascinating too is that you've uh, integrated philanthropy into your business model yes so can you explain that which part well, I, I believe if customers order a mattress that they no longer wish to keep, the you donate the mattress to one of a variety of charity houses, including the Salvation Army. Oh yeah, yes, yes. So, so in Australia, it's not. Um, well, it's not. I, I mean, it's not very good to sell second-hand mattress. So you know, we go. You know, like if if we let people donate the mattress and we are not selling those, then why don't we? You you know, donate them to charity so we can help more people. So so by far I think we donated more than three 
three. I think I forgot it was three thousand or four thousand mattresses to Savile, and and also some a few hundreds to other charity as well. I believe you also fitted Sleep Out, which is a Melbourne-based business, uh, a Melbourne-based uh, women's refuge organisation. Is that right? Sleep Biz. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we also we also donate to a lot of um, like cancer group where we we give out you know free bamboo pillowcases uh, you know and and like healthcare um, we we donate a lot of the sheets that we we sell um, yeah just just help out help out when when we can basically right okay and uh, and your customers know this not really we don't really promote that online. Right. Okay. 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 But uh, so, why why do you do this? Why do you pursue the philanthropy? Because I can. Because <laughs> you know, like if I can help, I I will help. Just within my, you know, with within my ability, you know, because um, if those people needed me and it's not hurting me to help them, of course I'll help them. Now, in terms of the manufacture of the mattress, uh, are the mat- are the mattresses actually made here or overseas? They're made in overseas, but we we specify all spats. So, like, just say our TDI, which makes the forms, are from Germany, and then like the zippers is from Japan, and then we have this waterproof cover. It's also from Germany, and and some of the materials are from Korea, Japan. So the assemble part is in China, for because because it's just cheaper labor to assemble them. So they're assembled in China and they they're brought here, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, and basically your mattresses are selling at uh, how, how much lower than uh, the conventional mattresses? We are not comparing to, like, cheaper, like, mattress in the market, but, like, the, the, like the memory foam type mattress, we are about half of the price. So after you bargain, right? So, so uh, like I mentioned, like, they could have sold you a mattress for... 5,000 market down to 2,000 and we're about selling it for Ecosa sells our matches for about nine, $900 for a queen size. That's very yeah. cheap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's including delivery and that 100 night free trial so that you 100% sure you l- will love the mattress. And even if you don't, you know that when we when you return your mat- mat- mattress, it's gonna help someone else. So, yeah, it's a win-win situation. Yeah. So where do you see Ocosa developing? Uh, what's what's the future hold for the company? So we are slowly stepping into, like, um, we always wanted to help people sleep better. So, you know, we, you know, developing other products like bamboo bed sheets and silk quilt and even, like, bedside table we've put in a technology in it so that you know it will still it will help you sleep better in a way so yeah just developing different other things to help people sleep better and developing it beyond mattresses yeah yeah true yeah that's right well Ringo it's going to be fascinating to watch and uh, thank you very much for your time cool thank you and now let's talk to IFM investors economist Alex Joyner well Alex The Reserve Bank of Australia has slashed interest rates to 0.1%. They've brought in quantitative easing for the first time, and they seem to have taken a glass-half-empty approach to the economy, and they're throwing the kitchen sink at it. What's your view about this? 
Yeah, so I think you know the Reserve Bank had had a change of heart over recent months in terms of what it thought it needed to be doing to support the economy uh, going forward. I think it's uh, the change of heart sort of come as other central banks have done a lot more than the Reserve Bank in terms of the expansion of their balance sheets, and I think that's really where the Reserve Bank is now trying to play in a global game. So, you know, the Reserve Bank, it was unsurprising to most that there was a reduction when you say slashed 15 basis points on the, on the policy rate. So, yes, it cut it, you know, more than in half, but uh, a very incremental change there on, on the cash rate down to 0.1%, also taking its yield curve control target for the, the three-year bond down to 0.1%, and also on its uh, term funding facility, it uh, t- took that down from 025 to 0.1%. So these are all things where it is trying to reduce borrowing costs or the cost of interest for households and businesses. Very incrementally, will it do much to change behaviours? Probably not for businesses, I don't think. Maybe for households, it might be supportive of the property market. We're already starting to see a turn there. But the other thing it did, and this was sort of the the quantum shift, is it it, it shied away from its yield curve control, which is a form of quantitative easing, but it, it is targeting a level of a bond yield uh, irrespective of the quantity of the bonds that need to be bought and switch to sort of more normal um, quantity-based quantitative easing that other central banks do by saying it would buy $100 billion of government bonds at 5 to 10 uh, bond yields uh, over the next six months. So it's really starting to play in a global game where balance sheets are important. And this was, you know, one of the speeches from the Reserve Bank. I think it was Christopher Kent noted that judge the RBA's stance on what its balance sheet is doing. And its balance sheet is now expanding a little bit more rapidly than it otherwise was. The term funding facility, uh, that was about $82 billion drawn of $200 billion. That expands the uh, RBA's balance sheet. Uh, it had bought around a bit under $65 billion to keep uh, the three-year bond yield at 2.5% or a little bit below. So it doesn't have to do too much more there. And now it's adding this $100 billion. But will it work? Well, look, the market reaction was pretty circumspect. I think the currency actually rose after this. Um, and when you put it in context, it, it's really only around about $5 billion sort of a week in terms of what the what the Reserve Bank will be doing in terms of its buying, if you average it out. So is that a lot? Probably not much. It's probably not as much as they've done on the yield curve control over a period of time. And does it get them playing in this global game? Well, the Reserve Bank's balance sheet was about 15% of GDP uh, going into this, uh, touch over. Um, look, $100 billion, uh, does, that, does that move the needle? Um, it's about 5% of GDP. Maybe it, the Reserve Bank's balance sheet gets to a bit over 20%. But, you know, you look at the global stage and, you know, the Fed Reserve is at 37%. Uh, the Bank of England and the ECB are also much higher. The ECB is closer to 65% uh, of GDP on its balance sheet. And then you get to Japan, which is 
the better part of 140% of its GDP is, is its QE program. So, you know, the Reserve Bank's trying to play in a game. It's about getting the currency down. It's the, the battle of the balance sheets in, in currency wars, is the way I put it. But whether the Reserve Bank will be successful, you know, that remains to be seen. But it needs to be seen to be doing all it can. Well, given that they're playing in a global market and all the other central banks are playing in the same direction, can we see that $100 billion bond buying program expanded six months down the track? Yes, uh, the answer is yes. The, the Reserve Bank has maintained that it is ready to do more and it, it has shown a willingness to do more. So it wouldn't be unsurprising uh, if we get down the track and the Reserve Bank has to do more to get the currency down or, or you know, the, the economy is not recovering in a way that uh, it would like to see then there's, there's no doubt that it will buy more bonds. And, and really what it's doing now, it's, it, it's not as much about financing households and businesses, it's also about financing the government sector because no, no household or business really borrows out at 10 years. It's a brave household or business that does that if they, if they can get the lending out that far, but it's, it's governments. So what the Reserve Bank's really saying to governments is, you know, we're going to make this cheap for you so we want to see you do things. And that's particularly true of, of the state governments where, you know, the Reserve Bank has committed to buying semi-government bonds as much as it's buying Australian government bonds. And, you know, the Reserve Bank governor has been quite open in his desire for state governments to do more. Uh, I think he put $40 billion more on, as, a, as a number uh, that, was, that was widely reported in the media. And he wants to see that, you know, spent on infrastructure programs, basically. It remains to be seen if, if state governments want to do that, because state governments, even more than the federal government, are, you know, keenly aware of this, of this almost a bogeyman for them in the, in the form of the credit ratings agencies, where as a state treasurer or state premier, your economic report card is basically your AAA credit rating for, say, say Victoria, for example, where I am. A state treasurer doesn't really want to lose that just because the Reserve Bank governor wants him to, to go into more debt, even though, you know, there's no real chance of, 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 the, of the state defaulting. So it's, it's, it's sort of a bit of a catch-22. Uh, the Reserve Bank's put all the foundations in place for this recovery, whether um, the business sector and government sector can sort of pick up the mantle from here and do what they need to be doing to support the economy as we recover. Because we're actually in, when you look at the global COVID-19 numbers, we're actually in a, a good place to recover. Uh, it's, it's now whether the, the economy can gather some momentum from here. What's interesting is that the RBA papers say, for its part, the board will not increase the cash rate until actual inflation is sustainably within the 2 to 3% target range. For that to happen, we need wages growth. And for that to happen, we need an unemployment rate of 4%. And that's many years off. And the RBA is implicitly acknowledging that. I think that's absolutely true. Um, it was interesting to me, some of the Reserve Bank's language around that. Now, we sort of knew already that the that the Reserve Bank would not be raising interest rates for another three years. They sort of already said that. Um, and we already know about this shift towards actual inflation rather than forecast inflation, determining uh, the path of policy rates. So they want to see inflation actually within the target band that hasn't been there for 19 quarters. So this is, you know, the Reserve Bank was failing on its inflation mandate before the crisis, and this has only reinforced that failure. So it actually now is forgetting about its forecasts and, and wanting to see actual inflation where, where it's mandated to be. Now, the other side of that is, is a tight labour market. And it was interesting to me, the Reserve Bank's language around this, because I think they got it a bit wrong. 
insofar as they described a return to a tight labour market. Now, I would suggest that the labour market was not nearly tight enough to get wages growth before this crisis. You know, we had an unemployment rate that was, you know, at best 5%. Um, we needed it closer to 4%. Most economists knew that. I think the Reserve Bank were coming around to that view that we really need unemployment rates very, very low to generate wage inflation because we really didn't see a, a pickup, a material pickup in wages inflation at all with a unemployment rate at 5%. So that was a curious statement from my perspective from the Reserve Bank. I still think they'll need an unemployment rate closer to 4 rather than um, rather than sort of the 6% that they're forecasting in, in uh, a couple of years' time to get wages growth to be uh, coming through in a sustainable way to generate some of that or help generate some of that inflation. Now, it's interesting still, uh, you look at the global ben uh, central bank scene and the Fed, for example, is, is really talking about running the US economy extremely hot and not worrying about concepts now like the Nehru. You know, there was a little bit of concern in the US Fed, you know, before the COVID crisis that, you know, we've got the unemployment rate down below four. Surely wages are going to break out here and inflation is going to break out and, you know, we're going to hit our targets easily and we better raise rates. And that was really what was happening. The, I think the change now and the shift in thinking from at least the Fed, and this might flow through to other central banks, is basically let's just get the unemployment rate down as low as we can get, whether it's below four or closer to three, you know, like a Japan-style uh, unemployment rate, in, even in the twos, let's do that because we want to see the wages growth this time. We don't want to expect the wages growth. We don't want to go back to our Phillips curves and our, you know, spreadsheets. We want to actually see extremely tight labour markets, wages growth that is sustainable, uh, and then the inflation that comes from that. And, and then we'll think about tightening policy. And I think that's really the, res the road that the Reserve Bank's going down. So when it says it won't raise uh, interest rates for at least three years, I think they uh, are basically entrenched. And there are consequences of having that because we're going to have extraordinarily easy monetary policy for as long as we can forecast out. Um, and you know, Australia came into this with a, a lot of high health, a lot of uh, household debt, and I talk about this a lot. And we're going to exit, the, you know, in four or five years' time with a whole lot more, in my view. And indeed, it would take three to four years to get unemployment down to four percent. Well, that's right, and it's a it's another interesting debate because fiscal policymakers and in, in the budget, they they pretty much said, you know, we'll leave fiscal support in place until we get the unemployment rate down to six percent. And that's all well and good. And that'll, you know, they're forecasting that to happen in 2023. My argument would be, well, who's going to take it down from 6% to 4% or, or lower? Um, the Reserve Bank certainly are at the end of its um, capability of employing effective policy to do that. So really, the pressure is really going to be on the government to do that, in my view. And they'll have to change tack here to be driving the economic cycle to get that unemployment rate down. I think what's problematic is also what is forecast on population growth. So it seems to me that the, the government are forecasting a situation in which, you know, we get a vaccine fully deployed in 2021 and then we just open up the borders again and we try and get back to a level of population growth that we had entering the crisis. Now, there hasn't been any real debate around whether that's appropriate. If you have an unemployment rate that is at 6%, you need to get it down to 4%. 
should you be increasing labour supply? You know, I've said I've said many times before, and I've been quoted in the media a lot around this, that it has been Australia hasn't had a labour demand problem going into this crisis. It has had a labour supply issue that it is unwilling to address. We've just had more people wanting a job, uh, so the participation rates have risen, um, and we have had more people. Uh, from population growth that is double, uh, in some cases, triple that of other advanced nations. Now, it's a difficult conversation to have about migration and, and, and population growth. So policymakers haven't had it, but that would be a way to tighten up the labor market uh, more quickly. Now, you don't want skill shortages within that, but you certainly can have a debate around what is the appropriate level of inflation if we have spare capacity in the labor market. But again, Policymakers, uh, and it's not really uh, in the Reserve Bank's, you know, areas of responsibility to talk about this. Uh, it's basically should come from the government, but you know, Australia has been hooked on this population growth uh, as an economic driver. Uh, you know, drives property markets as well. It's a matter of whether we can decide to get off that. Indeed, it will leave the government asking some very hard questions. Alex, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure as always, Leon. So, what's happening in the news? While US stocks soared as promising coronavirus vaccine news and Joe Biden's White House victory sent investors into a frenzy, the Dow Jones Industrial Average spiked nearly 1,600 points or 5.6% after drug giant Pfizer and German biotechnology firm BioNTech announced that their vaccine candidate was more than 90% effective compared with a placebo. It is the strongest sign yet that the unprecedented effort to develop a vaccine was in sight. President-elect Joe Biden applauded Pfizer's breakthrough in a statement on Monday, but he warned that the end of the battle against COVID-19 is still months away. Today's news does not change this urgent reality, Biden said. Americans will have to rely on masking, distancing, contact tracing, hand-washing and other measures to keep themselves safe well into next year. And McDonald's will test a meat-free burger in several markets next year as it adds plant-based menu offerings, which it has coined McPlant. International President Ian Borden said that McPlant was created by McDonald's and for McDonald's. Borden said that the McPlant line could also include chicken substitutes. McDonald's began testing a meatless burger, dubbed the PLT, in several dozen Ontario restaurants in September last year. By April, the chain had ended the pilot and has since said that it has no plans to bring back its PLT burger at this time. Former McDonald's CEO Don Thompson sits on the plant-based meatmakers board. Other international McDonald's markets have found more success with meatless burgers. Restaurants in Germany, for example, have added veggie burgers made by Nestle to their menu. Rival, Burger King, which is owned by restaurant Brands International, released a plant-based Whopper in the US with a patty made by privately held Impossible Foods last year. And the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment lifted by 2.5% to 107.7 in November from 105 in October. This is another strong result. It follows the 11.9% increase in October, with the index now 35.3% above its level in August. The index is also now 13% above the average over the six months prior to the economy-wide shutdown in March, and has reached its highest level since November 2013, a seven-year high. The most important developments since last month have been the significant unwinding of restrictions across Victoria and the reopening of the Victoria-New South Wales border. The survey was conducted over the period of November 2nd to the 8th, before the second round of easing restrictions have been announced for Melbourne, although with Victoria's stunning recent success in containing the virus, expectations for the second round were buoyant. It also preceded the recent encouraging developments around Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine. 
An NAB's monthly business survey showed business conditions improved by a further 1.7 points in October to reach the highest level in 2020 so far. Business confidence saw a larger bounce of 8.5 points to hit a 17-month high. Both were driven by significant improvements in Victoria as restrictions eased, with conditions up by 12 points and confidence up by 23 points in the state. There were several positives in this month's data, with profitability, trading and forward orders all above pre-pandemic levels. Conditions in recreation and personal services, the sectors hit hardest by restrictions, continue to improve and will likely rise further in November as Melbourne reopens. There are reasons to be cautious, though. Conditions deteriorated in Queensland, South Australia and Western Australia. The latter two states also saw confidence weaken, as did Tasmania. While capacity utilisation rose 0.9 points to 77.9%, this is still well below the 81.3% recorded in February, and improvements in New South Wales appear to have stalled. The National Employment Index recorded only marginal improvement of 0.6 points and remains well below zero at minus 5.5, with all states in negative territory. According to NAB, this continues to suggest job shedding, with more firms reporting lower employment relative to the previous month. This may be partially reflecting the effect of some businesses, particularly outside Victoria, coming off JobKeeper. Finally, business conditions are now weakest in the construction industry, one of the largest industry employers. This is despite the housing construction incentives and infrastructure funding commitments from the federal and state and territory governments. And Commonwealth Bank has been hit by lower margins, rising expenses and higher provisioning, contributing to a 16% fall in quarterly cash profit to $1.8 billion as the tough economic conditions continue to squeeze the sector. And insolvency experts expect to be hit by a wave of company collapses from January the 1st after temporary relief measures to help businesses through the COVID-19 economic crisis expire. Practitioners in the area have spent the quieter than normal period working on existing insolvency matters, catching up on training and helping out in other service lines. The economic downturn caused by the coronavirus pandemic led the federal government to make two major changes to the way insolvencies are dealt with in Australia, alongside providing subsidy programs such as JobKeeper. The first insolvency-related measure was to introduce temporary relief rules for struggling companies and individuals. The temporary insolvency rules, which now run until December 31st, increased the thresholds at which creditors could issue a demand on a company to initiate bankruptcy proceedings and the time that a company had to respond to any demand. The second change, which kicks in from 2021, will allow small businesses with liabilities up to $1 million to continue trading for up to 20 business days while they develop a debt restructuring plan. And unemployed Australians will have the temporary coronavirus supplement extended into next year at a reduced rate under a federal government decision to increase the $16.8 billion payment. The supplement will continue until March in a boost for job seeker recipients and others on income support, ending weeks of doubt over whether payments would end a schedule at Christmas. Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Cabinet made the decision on Monday night with the rates likely to fall from $250 to $150 per fortnight. And the largest Australian-owned brewer, South Australia's Cooper's Brewery, has posted a 3.9% lift in beer sales for the, for the year at a time when the broader beer market is flat. Cooper's reported full-year profit before tax 2020 of $34.3 million, in line with the profit posted in 2018, but a strong recovery from the $23.1 million recorded in the 2019 financial year. Like other Australian brewers, Cooper's faced issues including the protracted shutdown and slow opening up of bars, clubs and other licensed venues at a time when beer consumption before the COVID-19 pandemic had hit lows not, not seen since World War II. 
And Canadian fertiliser giant Nutrien says it has the balance sheet needed for Australian farmers to grow and keep up with technology, as well as a global footprint to overcome any supply bottlenecks out of China. Nutrien is investing $50 million in a new digital platform for farmers and increasing capacity at its processing facilities in Western Australia and Victoria in a year when Australia's reliance on China for essential farm chemicals had become a hot topic. Australian farmers looking to take advantage of drought-breaking rains were exposed to shortages of the weed killer glyphosate earlier this year when COVID-19 disrupted shipments from China, prompting warnings from local crop protection supplier New Farm about China's supply stranglehold. Some farmers are now keen to avoid using Chinese-made products in response to what they see as Beijing's politically motivated trade sanctions on commodities like barley and beef. Like New Farm, Nutrien relies on China for supply of active ingredients used in its manufacturing in Australia, but globally it is a major customer for multinationals like Bayer, FMC and Syngenta. And a new analysis is urging the Morrison government to be cautious about what taxpayers' money it puts into big transport projects, warning they may turn out to be a herd of white elephants. Governments are now fast-tracking new road, bridge and other transport network projects in their quest for an infrastructure-led recovery from the COVID-19 recession. But the Grattan Institute think tank says it makes little sense to be spending big on transport projects that were conceived before the coronavirus pandemic. The analysis showed that of all projects value at $20 billion or more and built in the past 20 years, that the actual costs exceeded the promised cost by 21%. The pandemic should prompt governments to rethink major projects that have been promised or under construction, particularly those announced without a business case, the analysis says. And global biotech company CSL will begin manufacturing millions of vials of one of the most promising coronavirus vaccines in Melbourne in the hope trials will prove it is effective and can be rapidly distributed. CSL Chief Scientific Officer Andrew Nash said one milliliter vials of the University of Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine will be thawed on Monday, having been frozen in liquid nitrogen to preserve their integrity. The thawed vaccine, which came from a cell bank, will be added to a bioreactor, a large vessel where biological reactions take place, where it will go through a fermentation process, grow and multiply. This facility at Broadmeadows is the only one of its kind in Australia, Dr Nash said. The vaccine will spend six days multiplying in the bioreactor, then be filtered and purified, leaving just the antigen, the all vaccine product, ready to be put into dosage vials. There will be eight or nine processes like this, each processing three million to four million doses. The biotech company has separate contracts with AstraZeneca and the Australian government to manufacture about 30 million doses of this vaccine candidate. CSL said the total processing time for the vaccine is approximately 50 days. The vaccine is still subject to approval by the Therapeutic Goods Administration for use in Australia. The results of stage three clinical trials on the vaccine are expected by the end of this year. If they're positive and the vaccine passes all regulatory requirements, the first doses could be released in the first half of next year. There are more than 150 candidate COVID-19 vaccines, most of which are in pre-clinical stages, meaning they're still being tested on animals and on, or in labs. About 40 have reached human trials. CSL is manufacturing two separate vaccines, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and the University of Queensland vaccine. These will be done at separate times. And the number of branches and ATMs operated by the big four has fallen sharply over the past five years and is likely to accelerate as customers do more banking online, branch foot traffic falls and banks clamp down on costs. While branch numbers have been in steady decline since the early 2000s, the number of ATMs have begun to drop off more sharply as the cost of maintaining expensive networks of the high-tech machines rises and the use of cash plummets. 
Points of presence data submitted to a parliamentary inquiry showed a 33% fall in the number of branches and ATMs operated by the big four banks per 100,000 people between 2015 and 2020. Westpac was a bank to reduce its footprint the most decisively, slashing its ATMs in regional areas by 45% and in metro areas by 56%, for an average of 53% across Australia, according to the data. And Crown Resorts is facing another chapter in a legal battle with the Australian Taxation Office, over $100 million in GST from dealings with junkets. Late last week, the ATO lodged an appeal against a decision of the Federal Court that sided with Crown on whether commissions and rebates paid to junkets should fall under normal GST rules or special rules for gambling revenue. Junkets refer to gambling promoters who organise tours for international high rollers to Crown casinos in Australia. The legal staff started in 2018 when Crown Resorts contested the GST rulings made by the ATO for its Melbourne and Perth casinos over several years. In September, Justice Jennifer Davies ruled in favour of Crown, but the ATO now says her judgment should be put aside. The ATO said Justice Davies erred in her judgment that the relationships between junkets and casinos were one integrated and indivisible transaction, and the commissions and rebates should be considered a separate contract unrelated to gambling. And BHP has defeated an attempt to launch a £5 billion or $9 billion Aussie class action lawsuit in England related to the 2015 Samarco Dam disaster in Brazil after the judge ruled that the running parallel lawsuits in two countries would become a white elephant of cost and complexity. The lawyers representing more than 200,000 Brazilian claimants said they would immediately appeal the fundamentally flawed judgment and were overwhelmingly confident they could get it overturned. The lawsuit was brought in England because the victims of the Fundau Tailings Dam collapse say they're getting only slow and inadequate regress via the Brazilian courts and from the Renova Foundation, which BHP and its 50-50 joint venture partner Vali set up to repair damage and disperse compensation. Justice Turner of the Liverpool High Court concluded it would be alarming to have an English case proceeding in parallel with the Brazilian court processes, especially as they sometimes involve the same claimants and might deliver irreconcilable verdicts. And Scudulo, a leading deskless productivity software provider, published a research report which shows the COVID-19 effects on desk-based workers, those in traditional office settings, and their deskless counterparts, mobile and remote employees, finding that both are working for many hours and worry about the risks related to either being on the front line or returning to the office. With every job suffering from the pandemic in some way, the research analysed the challenges that both deskless and desk-based workers face, also how they perceive their jobs going under the present circumstances. One of the key findings of the study found that 33% of deskless workers have either been infected with COVID-19 or know someone who has, which is higher than the national average. However, executives of both segments of the workforce are working as much as they can to avoid potential exposure, as many companies have instituted work-from-home policies or enacted new regulations such as wearing a mask or social distancing. Other than the health-related concerns, workers say that their jobs have become more difficult, 58%, with deskless, 31%, and desk-based, 38%, saying working more hours is a reason why. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Bruce Tolgan over in the U.S., the founder and CEO of Rainmaker Thinking, coach and management thinker Tolgan, will tell us how companies can rebrand themselves with smart recruiting. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel about signs that the Australian property market might be picking up post-COVID. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBowDoubleZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.